Have you ever witnessed a situation where a husband is begging his wife or a boyfriend is pleading with his girlfriend to take him back? Usually after he has done something wrong. And the situation, of course, can be reversed. But it is a scene of desperation to restore the relationship to where it once was. Often, the one who messed up will plead, I will change, I will change, I promise to change. I will do anything you want if you will only take me back. And if the wife or the girlfriend does take him back, then there is a profuse appreciation expressed by saying thank you, thank you on the part of the one that is being restored. There is thank you through action in a life transformed and changed. I wonder sometimes in the same way when we've sinned against God, do we have this sort of emotional desire similar to what I've just described to plead with God, we will change. We will do anything you want for us to do. Just take us back. Restore our relationship. And then when he does, and he always does, do we then thank him profusely? Thank you, Lord, for giving me another chance. While this is an ideal that we should all mimic in our lives, the sad reality is this is not the case. Why not? In the scriptures, there are two general types of restoration as it relates to our relationship with the Lord. There is, firstly, a future complete restoration when we are in our glorified state at the end of this earthly life or at the rapture of the church, whichever comes first. The second type of restoration the Bible talks about is a relational restoration between God and his children while living now on earth where we confess of our sins we've done wrong. We ask God for forgiveness and we live out a changed life in order to fellowship closely with the Lord. The applications of today's message will not focus on our complete restoration in the future glorified state of our lives, but will focus on our restoration, on the restoration of our fellowship and relationship with the Lord on earth in this lifetime. Now, why should we seek this fellowship restoration with the Lord? With the same emotional pleading and desire that is first expressed in our starting illustration, especially if we're living in sin or have sinned. The reason we would want to seek a restoration in our relationship with the Lord is because of the wide-ranging benefits that restoration brings. And there are many to talk about, but we want to focus on four this morning as we conclude our study in the book of Ezekiel. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be expositing chapters 47 and 48. It's been a wonderful journey preaching this book. Some of you have commented that you've never read through this book. You found it difficult, and it is a difficult book if we don't take time to study this book. And yet, as you have noticed, and as I have also felt in my life, such great spiritual truth through the timeless truths of God's Word, regardless how difficult the book may be. And I have learned great lessons from this book, as I hope you have as well. And we'll begin a new book study next year. Well, we come now to the last two chapters of the book of Ezekiel. And what we want to see this morning is how God restores the nation of Israel to glory in fulfillment of his promises and see how applicationally this same unchanging God gives us similar benefits when he restores us to a right relationship with him. And we're going to take a look at some of the highlights of the best of restoration's results this morning in chapters 47 and 48. Look with me as I read verses 1 to 5 of chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. 
he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. And he brought me through the waters, and the water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. You see, after Ezekiel is taken on a tour of the Millennial Temple, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and he was able to see the practices of temple life, now the prophet Ezekiel was brought to the area east of the temple complex through the north gate where he saw a stream of water coming from the city's eastern side. And it flowed east. Now in the book of Zechariah tells us there is a similar stream of water that flows from the city west. But the focus of Ezekiel is on the river flowing east. This river, the Bible tells us, goes through various dramatic depth changes every 1,750 feet from the depth of an ankle deep water to knee deep to waist deep and to a depth that it was impossible to swim in. What this indicates is that in the millennium, there is a great topological change of the land. This is not currently what you see today if you were to go to Jerusalem and walk east from the Temple Mount. What you see in the restoration is that there is change. That is one of the essence of restoration, a change. But notice something that is a part of this change, verse 6 to verse 9. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters, note this, are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, note this, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there. Here it is again. For they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. What Ezekiel notices as he walks along the banks of these, this river, sourcing from the temple area, were that there are a lot of trees on each side. Because the great source of water has revitalized this land. It has made this land come alive again. In fact, the Bible tells us this river emanating out of the temple now mixes with the Jordan River, and its waters now are also healed. If you are to go to the River Jordan Valley today, you will not see what is described in the book of Ezekiel. The land is very dry, it is parched. If not for the complex irrigation technology that both Israel and Jordan employ to at least minimize or at least try to irrigate this land, this area along the Jordan would really be dry and dead. What is shown here is that when God restores the people of Israel in the future, this land will be healed. It will be made alive again. And as a result of God's restoration, His blessings will be poured out. And the most clear example of this is the restoration of the Dead Sea, where now there is no fish because of the high salinity and mineral content. The Bible says in the future there will be many fish of many types. Look at verse 10 and 11. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Eglaim. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kind as the fish of the great sea. Note this, exceedingly many, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt, which is also very much needed. You see, God not only heals the land, He stocks this no longer dead sea with much fish. What I want you to see in number one of your taking notes is this. One of the results of God's restoration, the best of God's restoration's results, number one, is that healing and blessing come about. Healing and blessings. You see, the very essence of restoration is healing. 
the mending of what was broken. And in this context, the land is healed. God is in a restored relationship with his people Israel. And so as he restores them, he heals the land. And with the healing of the land, there is wonderful blessing. So applicationally, in our context today, the same and changing God works the very same way. When our relationship with the Lord is restored, when our broken relationship with him is mended, in the mending of this relationship, there is great blessing. Let me explain this. Let's extrapolate this idea. If, for example, you are a child and you are fighting with your parents and you are not on speaking terms, you're not talking with your parents, would you have the audacity, while you're not speaking to them, to go up to them today and ask them, Dad and Mom, remember in two and a half weeks it's Christmas. Don't forget to buy my Christmas gift. That's all I'm going to talk to you about. Would anyone have the audacity, if they're fighting with their parents, to come up to them and remind them, oh, by the way, remember, my birthday's coming up. Don't forget to buy me a gift. Only the most thick-skinned child, we say it in Chinese, only the one who's thick-skinned would ask a gift from a parent that they are fighting with and not talking with. That's why, parents, you ever notice that a few weeks before Christmas or a few days before your child's birthday, they're often the most obedient because they're really smart. And I'm sure you did the same thing when you were a child because you don't want to jeopardize the possibility that your parents, in their anger, will not buy you a gift. And so you're super obedient. You are very nice to them. And you're hoping that your parents notice where they are so overwhelmed by your obedience, they will come up to you and say, oh, you've been such a good boy or good girl. What would you like for Christmas? In the same way, when you're fighting with your spouse, you don't dare ask your spouse if you're not talking with them to do you any favors. I know this from personal experience. That's why I know always end the fight before mealtime. Because it's a pride issue for me not to talk to my wife and then still ask her to cook me dinner. But you know what happens after the fighting is over. You both said sorry. The relationship has been restored. There is emotional healing. And with that emotional healing comes with it the restoration of that relationship, which comes hand in glove, blessings. Because now to show that restoration has happened, parents often buy their children gifts. Your spouse will now be willing to do things for you if you ask. My kids are smart. Right after they have disobeyed and they have said sorry and we hug them and we tell them we love them and that all is forgiven, these opportunistic children of mine will often then ask for us at that moment to download an app or a game for them or ask for something, a goodie or a gift. I know you know what I'm talking about because at that moment it's very hard to refuse them because now you have to show that you really love them, have really forgiven them and all is well, that now you're no longer technically fighting and so most oftentimes you do what's asked. And couples, after they fight, you often fulfill the request of the other party. Now you say, well, this sounds very manipulative. But you know, that's exactly how God operates. When our relationship with the Lord is restored, and when emotional and spiritual healing is present, God wants to exhibit how much mending of that relationship there is, and he greatly blesses. Notice he doesn't make the water of the Dead Sea simply drinkable. He doesn't make the River Jordan simply have more water. The Bible tells us he stocks it with fish of every variety, going above and beyond what is called for. This is a picture of God's grace. This shows you the magnanimity of God's love and God's heart. He desires that when he heals 
us in our relationship with him. He wants to show us blessings. And so that is one of restoration's results. I hope you will see it as an impetus for you to want to be in a restorative relationship with God. Because it is in that relationship for God often blesses his people. Look at verse 12 with me for the second of these wonderful results of restoration. Verse 12. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Verse 12 describes the trees that line the banks of the river. The Bible tells us it will be used for food for the people. It will always bear fruit. There's enough food. The leaves also do not rot, the Bible says. In fact, they are used for medicine to heal people. That's why I believe that those individuals living in the time of the millennium will find the eradication of, of almost all illnesses because there in those living trees, these amazing trees, medicine for their illness will be found. We remark what wonderful trees. But that's not the most important thing. I want you to note something written in verse 12. You may have missed it if you read it too quickly. I want you to underline or circle the phrase, because their water flows from the sanctuary. Because their water flows from the sanctuary. You see, the point is that the reason the Dead Sea is now full of life is because the water that feeds into the Dead Sea is sourced from the sanctuary. The reason that this water is full of fish is because the source of the water comes from the sanctuary. The reason the tree always bears fruit for food for the people is because the water is sourced from the sanctuary. The reason that medicine from the tree leaves will be effective is because the source of the water is from the sanctuary. It is made very clear that all of these things happen because it comes from the Lord God, from His holy presence in the sanctuary. The Lord is the one and only source of this restoration. You see, one of the best results, number two, of restoration is that, number two, it is conditioned only on one person. Conditioned only on one person. What does that mean? Let's talk about this. This means that the basis and enabler of that restoration which the Lord promises is the Lord himself. If he restores you, it is contingent upon himself and no one else. And because he is God, he has the ability to restore you back to a condition of holiness where you are able to fellowship with him. As we see in verses 1 through 12, the Lord God does all of these things for Israel... And he doesn't need to get approval from anyone else. He doesn't have to ask the United Nations, is it okay that I bless the people of Israel like this? Is it okay that I plant these awesome trees in their land? Is it okay that I give them this land allocation? The Bible tells us the Lord does not get approval from anyone else. He and he, being the Lord God, has the ability to make these amazing trees do what they want to do in order to bless the people. You say, why is this important? That it is conditioned only on one person. Let me give you a practical example. Let's say, for example, you wrong your spouse. You wrong your spouse by cheating on her. And she may be inclined to forgive you and try to restore a relationship with you. But I can guarantee you that her decision is often not her decision alone. It's often a family decision. It's a decision by committee. Her father and mother may be so angry at you that you broke the trust when they entrusted their daughter to you, and they may not give their consent to forgive you. There, her siblings and friends may hate you forever. Your children may be very displeased and begin to take sides. And of course, you would try to seek their approval so that you can return to a restoration environment that was before you cheated on her. And while perhaps she may believe that you deserve a second chance, 
most of them won't give you a second chance. And while the extended family may be forced to accept you and accept her decision, you know the feeling when you are gathering in a family gathering. They ignore you. They say bad things about you. They can't wait for you to mess up and for them to jump on you and say, see, he is no good. And so you walk in eggshells. It's not the same anymore. That is the problem of restoration by committee. And yet the Bible tells us the wonderful thing about God's restoration and fellowship is that it is contingent upon himself and no one else. Because it is by his grace he chooses to forgive us without consulting anyone. It is not restoration by committee. It is restoration through the person of Jesus Christ. And when he restores us, he doesn't continue to throw shade at us. And he decided by his grace and mercy that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf to restore us. Most of us, if we were going to choose who to save, we would all get together as a community and decide whether this person is worthy of being saved. Well, he's a mass murderer. He doesn't deserve to be saved. But this person at least tries. He's pretty good. He just sins a, a little bit. He can be restored. But God says, I don't want your man-made standards for who I can or cannot restore. I sent my son Jesus Christ, God himself, to die on mankind's behalf. And I can forgive everyone's sin no sin so great that cannot be forgiven. And even if you don't agree, doesn't matter because restoration is contingent and conditioned only based on the decision of one person. I want you to think about this theological truth and it should impact your life. God can forgive us and restore us when others cannot you know, my friends, if we did to our loved ones what we do to God, I don't think our loved ones would ever forgive us. We ignore God when we don't need Him. I tell you what, if we ignore our friends every time we don't need them, they know we're using them and they won't be our friends anymore. If we adulterate ourselves to the world as how we treat God, I bet you your spouse won't stick around long if you keep adulterating yourself to others. If you ignore your friends as we ignore God almost every day of the week and then come crawling to Him when we need Him, most all of your friends would never forgive you. You just ignore me most of the time and only when you need me, you come crawling back. If we did to friends what we do to God, they wouldn't forgive us. Our Heavenly Father, through the shed blood of His Son, accepts us every time. Because it is conditioned only on Him by His grace. He doesn't have to ask others. He doesn't have to ask, well, do you think that Stephen Tan deserves another chance? Do you believe that he should be forgiven? Do you believe that Stephen Tan deserves the blessings I'm going to give him? No. In His sovereignty, He just does it. Just like when he gives the people of Israel in the millennium these very unique trees, a body of water stocked with fish sourced from the sanctuary. It comes from God himself who is to question. As a churchgoer once recalled something in his church, there was a guest band that was leading praise and worship at our church and their passion for the Lord was moving. We could see and feel their enthusiasm then, to our surprise, the musicians revealed that they were all ex-convicts. Suddenly, their songs took on special meaning. And I saw why their words of praise meant so much to them. Their worship was a testimony of lives broken and lives restored. My friends, all of our lives are a testimony of lives broken and lives restored. Not because it is a community consensus. 
If it was a community consensus, I would not be standing on this pulpit this morning. I don't think anyone would be qualified to lead in worship or to stand as members of the choir leading in worship if it was a restoration by consensus. But because the restoration of our Lord is conditioned only to the decision of one person through his finished work on the cross, you and I can stand before men and testify of our relationship with the Heavenly Father. One of the greatest benefits of being restored by God in relationship with Him. Others may not accept us. Others may never forgive us. But there is one who the Bible tells us remembers our sin. What? No more. The third of these wonderful benefits of restoration from verse 13 onwards. From verse 13 to the end of the chapter, God reveals to Ezekiel the extent of the land allocation for Israel in the millennium according to the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis. Look at verses 13 and 14 as I read. Thus says the Lord God, These are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally with one another. For I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. So very clear about the reason for why God is doing what he's doing in restoring his people, the nation Israel. He is doing it because he swore an oath. I raised my hand in an oath. I made a promise to give it to your forefathers. I made that promise thousands of years ago. And I'm going to fulfill it. In the first 29 verses of chapter 48, it speaks about the specific tribal allocation for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Very specific. It is the literal fulfillment for this land promise. But as a side note, as, as you read this, perhaps you may be a little bit jealous. How is it that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, get to live so close to Jerusalem, to the very presence of God? I want to point out something for you in case you think uh, it's not very fair. Look at verse 22 to 23 as a side note. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourself and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as a native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. As it was a practice, even in the Old Testament, if you read carefully, non-Jewish individuals who want to live in the land allocated to the 12 tribes would be allowed to live in the land. In the millennium, non-Jewish people who want to live in the land allocated to Israel would get the opportunity to live there and have inheritance rights. For all of us, as resurrected Christians, we don't have to worry about that. While we will interact with these people on millennial earth, our home will be in heaven. But now let's get back to the emphasis about why God is so specific about giving the Jewish people this land. Look at verse 29 of chapter 48. This is the land which you shall divide by lot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portions, says the Lord God. There it is again. They receive this land as a perpetual inheritance from the Lord. Why? Because God does not forget his promises. He made a promise to Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees, not because he was more righteous than anyone else, but because of his grace, he simply says, I'm going to enter into a covenanted relationship with people who don't deserve it, and I will give them this land because I promised it to them. And even though I exile them to a foreign land and I scatter them around the world, this is the fulfillment of my promise. What an encouragement it must have been to these people 
who are not currently residing in their ancestral land. They had been exiled, and they were probably worrying, will God remember his promises? And God says, I surely will. I will give you back this land because I made a promise. You see, the greatness of God's restoration, number three, if you're taking notes, is that in restoration, number three, promises are fulfilled. In restoration, promises are fulfilled. God is very specific in the measurement of the allocated land. That's why current Israel is not the fulfillment of this prophecy because they do not currently have the land allotment that God has promised them here in Ezekiel. Because God says, when I fulfill my promises, it will be in total fulfillment. Listen carefully, my friends. The many promises of God found in the scriptures find fulfillment when we are restored fully in our relationship and standing before God. Did you hear that? The many promises of the scriptures find fulfillment when we are fully restored in our relationship and standing with God. Sometimes we live with the convoluted wrong notion today in our Christian life that we can continue to live in sin and then somehow wrongly expect that God will fulfill His promises in the Scriptures. It's just like the child who is not talking with their parent, still demanding that a gift be given to them. God is under no obligation to fulfill His promises to us while we are living in strained relationship with Him. When we are living in sin, when we are not walking in intimacy with Him, then He is under no obligation to provide for, his, for our provisional needs even. Oh, we get so mad at God. We say, God, why don't you hear our prayers and I want you to think how silly that is. Here we are praying, Lord, heal me. Lord, let me pass my board exam. Lord, bless me with this business deal. Lord, pour upon your blessings upon my life. And then when God doesn't do it, we say, Lord, you're lying, see? Where are these promises you say you will fulfill? I want you to go back and read through the promises of the Scriptures. I want you to go back and read at the context to which they are given. I'll give you one. Matthew 6, 33. Oh, we love that verse. We can all memorize it. You know it. What is it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. But we love to focus on the second part. All these things shall be added to me. All the blessings. But we forget the emphasis of the first part. What is it? To seek him first. To seek Him first. We have no right to get mad at God. When we ourselves are not in relationship with Him, how in the world can we expect that when we ask, He will deliver? Notice how God treats the nation of Israel. The Bible tells us Israel receives this land when? After the nation has turned back to God as they go through judgment in the Great Tribulation. When the nation comes and kneels the knee and asks God for forgiveness, in that restorative state, then God's promised fulfillment are delivered. We have a hard time understanding this not only because of our entitlement generation, but because of our Asian culture. I get so many questions often from parents who are frustrated with their children. Pastor, help my child. They are not listening to me. They're lazy. I said, how old is your child? 28 years old. I said, your 28-year-old child should be independent. And then they tell me their problem. Well, my 28-year-old child is lazy, lives in our house, demands all these things, isn't actively looking for a job. I said, I, I have a solution to that. 
it's real easy. Cut them off. Throw them out. Oh, no, that's a Western concept, Pastor. We can't do that. We love our child. I say, well, I have no solution for you then. Because if you're going to enable that behavior by giving that child all of the blessings, why in the world would they want to change in any way? Right? But the problem is, in our culture, we feel like we're obligated to take care of our children until they're 80 years old. And so we build up monsters. Although that's a different sermon for a different time. The application is there. The truth of the reality is that even when we are not holding up our end of the bargain, we've convoluted God's grace and we expect Him to give us all the things that He's promised. Don't forget that in the context of Scripture, the promises of God are often conditioned upon our being restored in relationship with Him. He will always remember His promises, don't get me wrong. But those promises are fulfilled. Think of that verse. The prayer of a righteous man, what? Availeth much. It is when you are living in a righteous condition before the Lord where your prayers will affect the heart of God and His decision. If you're not a righteous person living in righteousness and holiness, your prayers may not be answered. And don't you blame God for that. promises of God are conditioned upon our being in restored relationship with Him. In many ways, God still holds out that carrot stick. And you may think it's manipulative, but His grace fits right into this practice. He says, if you come in fellowship with me, I will fulfill my promises I made to you. And that's why parents, applicationally, don't give all of your money away to your children, thinking that somehow they're going to take care of you when you get old. So many parents come up to me, talk to my child. I gave them my life savings with the hopes that they will come and visit me and take care of me. But he bought you. No, no appreciation, no remembering of the good things I did for them. Just ignore me. Well, parents, keep your money. I know children didn't want to hear that. Keep your money. Hold out that carrot stick for them so that they'll come and visit you often. Have dinner with you. Spend time with you. And you think that's selfish. That's exactly how God operates. Because He created us. He knows us. And He says, I reserve the best fulfillment of my promises when we are in relationship together. God so wants to fulfill His promises in your present life. But he's waiting for you to be in a restorative relationship with him. Another result, verse 30 to 35. I begin in verse 31. The gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel, the three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, and one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, and one gate for Dan. On the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Simeon, one gate for Ishakar, and one gate for Zebulun. On the west side, 4,500 cubits, with their three gates, one gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, and one gate for Naphtali. Verse 35, note this. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. And that's how the book ends. The gates of the city of Jerusalem in the millennium will be named after the 12 tribes of Israel. But what most impressed Ezekiel was that this city will no longer primarily be known as Jerusalem. But the city's name has changed to the Lord is there. And so someone may ask in the millennium, what's that city over there? The people will say, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Because the presence, the glory of God, as we talked about in previous weeks, resides in that city. And so the people just simply point to the city on that hill and they say, the Lord is there. 
Perhaps one of the most wonderful benefit of restoration, number four, of our relationship with God, simply put, is fellowship with Him. Number four, fellowship with Him. When you are in a restorative relationship with God, you and I have the benefit of fellowshipping with Him in a way that is wonderful and joyous. It's like students when I walk around the school sometimes. And either they're usually more naughty students or they're scared of the teacher. When their teacher walks by their classroom or a teacher walks by the classroom, they don't all say, Oh, the teacher is here! With gladness in their voice. What's usually the reaction? The teacher's there. They're scared. Shape up! The teacher's here. I don't believe that's the mood and the tenor of how the city of Jerusalem will be referred to as in the millennium because the fellowship of the people is with the physical presence of the living God, Jesus Christ, sitting on David's throne. They will say, the Lord is there. Almost with the excitement of those psalms of ascent. We're going we are going because the Lord is there. There's an excitement because that fellowship with God is so intimate and so special. It is not tinged with fear. It is not tinged with wondering whether it would be an awkward situation. I wonder sometimes, do we ever worry that our relationship with God would be in a way similar to our relationship with with people on earth. Would you have a great relationship with someone who knows all the bad things you've done? Would you be free to come up to the pulpit this morning and share with the congregation the things you've done in your life? If I were to ask for volunteers this morning to share their deepest and darkest secrets, I don't think anyone would raise their hand. And if even if you did, I don't think you'd share the deepest, darkest secret you have. It's because, oftentimes, of our own culture, our guilt-ridden, complex culture, where it's always about the face. And so we're always hiding certain things because we're scared that if we do not, or we're scared that if someone finds out the stumblings of our sin, that they will think of us in a very odd way. If I were to ask you, how many of you look at pornography? I don't think anyone would want to raise their hands. And yet surveys show us and tell us that in an honest survey, 65 to 85% of men and women say they struggle with purity of the eyes. Now, it shouldn't be a secret, because one of the tricks of the evil one is what? To get us to sin with the lust of the eyes. But no one would ever admit that. Because somehow we're the first to admit that. We'd be called a pervert. We'd be called as someone who is undesirable. If anyone ever were to find out that this is something we struggle with, then they would not be fit to be teachers or to be in leadership position. And yet if the surveys are right, that's a lot of us who struggle with this. And so that's why in a friendship we have with one another, even in the church community, we're all very closed in our ability to share our struggles and what we've gone through. And yet, isn't it interesting and wonderful that the Lord God, who is omniscient, who knows what we've done, who knows the very thoughts of our mind, invites us, invites us to fellowship with Him in a way where He doesn't bring up all of our past sins to throw it at us. Right? I don't think any of you would have friends who if you meet them once a year, let's say at Christmas, and if they see you every year, once a year, and they say, Oh, Stephen, great to see you. I remember what you did 20 years ago. Every year, they keep bringing up that one incident 20 years ago when you may fail them. Would you want to be their friends anymore? Of course not. 
Would you be friends with anyone who keeps bringing up, getting historical, all the bad things you do? They try to hide it in a joke, but even in a joke, there is truth to it. We wouldn't want to be with friends like that. And yet the Bible tells us when God invites us to be in fellowship with Him, it is in a fellowship where the book of Hebrew tells us what? We come boldly to the throne room of grace. Boldly, with confidence. Not you, you not in, in hiding cowardness, but in boldness, because we stand before Him justified through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says He remembers our sin no more. Not that He doesn't know, He's omniscient. But He doesn't use our past sins where we've asked for forgiveness. It has been cleansed through the blood of Christ. He doesn't use it against us anymore. What a wonderful, intimate experience where you know you failed Him, but His grace has restored you to a relationship where you can enjoy. And yet, why do we as people not crave that relationship more? When you come before God, in your private worship of Him and devotions, or when you come to Him in corporate worship, you don't bring to Him the baggage of your former sin. Because if you really believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is for the remission of sin, if He's forgiven that sin, others may bring it up, but God will never bring it up against you. That's the power. That's the power of the salvific blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us He invites us to fellowship with Him in this regard. It's a wonderful thing. Why don't we fellowship with Him more? There, the city is called the Lord is there. I wonder when we tell the world the Lord lives in our hearts. He lives here. Do people laugh or do they nod in agreement? If we're not in a restored condition with Jesus, then we're sending a very mixed message to the world of the fact that he lives here, but we're not talking to him. Right? How can you live like that? It's the same when non-believers sing Christmas songs about Emmanuel, God with us. He isn't with them. Why sing those songs? But we're going through the motions. Same way if we sing those songs or we claim that Jesus lives with us and lives in us, how does our actions point to the truth that our lives live out? The Lord is here. Well, if you claim that, the child of God, then you should be fellowshipping with Him. And He welcomes you back prodigal son welcomed by his loving father. I've often wondered why Ezekiel ends his book like this. The Lord is there. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe it's a call for that generation and even our generation today to first and foremost restore our personal relationship with God. You see, the church is not a place for perfect people. It is a place where people far away from the Lord can be reminded of the great benefit of establishing a relationship with Him. Because the only way you and I can be the watchmen of our generation making an impact in our community is that where we can call out to the world and say, look at me, here lives Jesus. And they will nod in acknowledgement because you so closely walk with Christ that your actions come out of the abundance of a deep relationship with Him. That is when you can be a watchman of this generation. And it begins with the restoration in our spiritual life of our walk with Him. If we can beg our spouses, if we can beg our friends, if we can beg our children, if we can beg our parents when we mess up to restore a broken relationship, how much more should we be asking the one who we call Lord and Savior to restore us to a relationship with Him? 
And when we do, we say thank you. But the wonderful thing is, He gives us so much more. He gives us healing. He gives us blessings, grace, superabounding in our life. He reminds us that it is conditioned only on Him. And even if the world doesn't forgive you, He does. And He enables it through His Son. In that restored relationship, He says, My promises to you will be fulfilled. Then He invites us to fellowship with Him in a way where we boldly come before Him without guilt, but with joy and confidence because of the work He did. These are but some of the great results of restoration. Why not enjoy some of these benefits today? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this book, Ezekiel, which reminds us of the glory of God reminding us of how we as your people have disregarded it, the glory of God. And yet, as the book ends, your grace and your mercy and your love shows that even after all we've done, you still want to be in relationship with us. And so I pray that the truths of the scriptures, especially from this book, will call each man and each woman here this morning to restore a relationship that is right before you. To come to acknowledge the life we live, claiming the shed blood of Jesus Christ, living in a way where we can all proclaim to the world, the Lord lives with us. Call upon your church, the men and women of it, to be the watchmen of this generation because it begins with the inner life for how we can make an impact with the world. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that on the cross we can find redemptive hope. Thank you for all you continue to do in our life. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.